Evangelist podcast here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode 20, in which we will be discussing Why Fish Don't Exist A Story of Loss, Love, and the Hidden Order of Life by Lulu Miller. Hi, Marian. Hi, Nissa. Isn't it funny how we keep telling people <laughs> we're going to discuss the Splendid and the Vile? We're just stringing them along. Yeah, yeah. It's to get all the Eric Larson fans to listen to our <laughs> podcast. And, and, and there are many, there are many. I am actually done with the Splendid and the Vile, <gasps> but I did have a head start on you. And I keep reading other books instead of finishing it. Although I do read a couple chapters every once in a while and still really love it. It's a really dense book. I mean, it's not a speedy read because it's just crammed with details, all of which are totally interesting. But it Mm -hmm. takes a jillion years to read it. But, you know, if you figure out like the number of hours of reading pleasure you get versus the price of the book, extremely good value. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I bought it, and I'm glad, because I've had it for many weeks now. Yeah, I bought it a long time ago, um, maybe like last April or May, sometime. I bought it from Barnes & Noble and picked it up at my local store of curbside pickup, because I've been so worried about them, you know, like not existing anymore. Yeah. Um, and I, they're my closest bookstore, and like the only good independent bookstore in my city is on the other side of it. And <laughs> there's a lot of interchanges between me and them. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, I bought it way back then and I looked at it and I thought about reading it, but I was in the middle of that big reading slump of mine. So uh, it's been sitting there and waiting all this time. So if nothing else, you got me to read the book and I really did enjoy it, but we will get there next we time for sure. There. Right. Next time for next sure. time. Absolutely. So this time we're going to talk about a book all about fish. Sort of all about fish. Sort of all about fish. Got fish in the title. It does have fish in the title. <laughs> so how's it been with you? Oh, it's been cold, but fine. Very, very cold. So cold. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, we just got through that um, cold, cold spell of many days of cold, which in these times also meant like not hanging outside with friends and not leaving my house even more than I don't usually leave my house. Yes. And I have big uh, shutters on lots of my windows, which mm -hmm. I like because um, they're very pretty besides, but they do a great job keeping the weather on the other side of the window in terms of, so if anybody needs like more insulation on their windows, I can recommend uh, shutters, but we had to keep them closed in order for them to work like that. So the house has been a little darker you know, and a little more enclosed yeah. than that. And I have not been really opening up the big windows for my cats to look out and stuff. So it's just been a little more winter than yeah. not lately. Yeah. So what have you been it doing is, to survive this cold been. besides just wearing um, lots of socks? Wearing lots of socks, wearing a hat inside. Um, 
It's a lot of it. We watched a lot of TV. We watched the, uh, my kids and I watched the entire series, Gravity Falls, um, which is, I don't know, probably 10 years old or so, and yeah. we'd never seen it. And I think we so. We just binged it in like two days. Both of my kids have watched it. I'm sure they've watched it all. I've kind of watched it in the background. Um, sometimes I'll sit and watch an episode with them and other times it's just there. So I know basically what we have going on here with Gravity Falls, but probably not, uh, any detail that you now know. Um, I, I feel like I have a hold on it temporarily and then it will probably fade from my mind because we've already <laughs> gone back to rewatching episodes of Loud House and Phineas and Ferb and boy listeners, if you have other ideas of shows we might like, <laughs> we, we're open to them. Let me tell you, Phineas and Ferb will have a place in my heart forever. Uh, and this is why. When my daughter, who's now 16, was in kindergarten, I was a parent volunteer to go on a field trip with the kindergartners to go see a play downtown okay. at a theater in the city we lived in then. And I arrived there, and the kindergarten teacher told me, well, not all of the children would be going. Um, so she was going to stay behind with the ones who were staying behind. And here were 19 five-year-olds <laughs> to take to the theater and this one by the way right here is a runner so don't lose him and uh i was like oh wow so yeah i did two things one is that i bribed them and i'm i'm not ashamed of this at all i gave every child on that bus two skittles nice. and i said if we were all well behaved and all arrived back on the bus to go back to the school we would have four more skittles each and then, math. yeah, and then I sang every song we could think of from Phineas and Ferb all the way there to keep them entertained. And my little runner, I, I just held his hand and he liked me so much. He sat on my lap during the theater. <laughs> he was so excited by the theater. But yeah, it's like 19 little children. It was terrifying. That is amazing. It is amazing that they would, you know, because reasons she couldn't go. So what's she going right. to do with all these other children? And. She'd had right. my son in her class previously and knew me well, and that was not like a child kidnapper, so, but still strange. Uh, but yes, I, so I have a, a soft spot for Phineas and Ferb forever, because they yeah. gave me great, great songs that I can sing with five-year-olds. They are great songs. I will not burst into song right now, but I could. <laughs> I know a lot of their songs, because yes. we have watched and rewatched Phineas and Ferb in the last year, so. There you go. There's a lot of songs. There are a lot of good ones. Um, I have been watching a lot of television as well, because it's something that you could do while you're huddled together under blankets. Um, yes. and we have been watching Ghosts, which is a British comedy show with, I think, just two seasons out, uh, which I like very much, about these people who inherit a manor house in the country, which is amazingly haunted by so many ghosts of just people, okay. and the female person in this couple gets like bonked on the head and then she can see all the ghosts and talk to them so she's trying to like have the house not fall apart and solve all their financial problems and deal with these ghosts who are super high needs people um and it's deeply funny and just it's always disaster one after the other and the ghosts are really really wonderful and they they go you know, through time over the course of the life of this English house. Um, and the other day we watched Space Sweepers on Netflix, which is a, I think, Korean 
movie. Um, it's in several languages. So some people are dubbed into English and some people are not and have subtitles. Like the French guy has subtitles. And okay. it is a hot mess and extremely enjoyable. I really liked it. My husband watched rapidly the whole time. He's like, that was a terrible movie. I'm like, you loved it. And, and my daughter really loved it too. Um, it has, oh gosh, the whole nine yards. It's like K-drama plus anime plus K-pop plus special effects. And a plot that is all over the place. And I enjoyed that very much too. So... That sounds amazing and like it would catch me up on all kinds of culture at the same time since I'm going straight from cartoons from 10 years ago. Yeah, I do feel hipper now. Me. I'm not going to lie. So, oh, yeah. Good, good. Yeah. I need to feel hipper. So, <laughs> and I have been I'll reading, try that one. I have been reading other books on the side as well since yes. I was done with The Splendid and the Vile. And I read The Fish Book before you did because I read it all in one day yes. and then recommended it to you. Uh, I have been reading. Uh, the Thursday Murder Club, which I was reading as an ebook from the library, and it returned itself automatically <gasps> before I was done. And I that's ah! horrible. And the wait on the renewal was uh, seven weeks, so I bought it, and it should be here today. And uh, between the time that returned itself and now, I've been reading Ancillary Justice uh, by Anne Leckie, I think like Leckie, which was the Hugo. What do you think of it so far? Maybe like, um. I like it very much, and I have to pause periodically because it's like big science fiction, and I get confused about everybody's name all the time, <laughs> like I do, and it is super tense, and right now it's in a it's in a scene where something very bad is going to happen, and because the narrator has multiple bodies, because they're all ancillary units of the ship at this point um, it has multiple viewpoints so we know what's happening in different rooms on the ship all at the same time so it's like you know you're advancing toward a horrible thing that's about to happen and it will interrupt to tell you what's going on here what's going on here what's going on here what's going on here and it's super tense um, so you can see why it you know won the Hugo and the Nebula and stuff like that uh, and I I do I just really like books where the main character is not like a people? Yes. Apparently that's you do. apparently that's a thing. Apparently it's on my list of like books Marion likes if the main character is not like a people people. Like Murderbot. Yeah. It's not a people people. Right. It's a you know, security unit. Um Yeah, I think that's good. And they kind of but they're like they can show you the nature of humanity, but they're not actual people people. So um so, yeah, it seems to be a good book for me. Um, I decided I wanted another science fiction book to read, so I did. That's awesome. There you go. I did turn on the audiobook of Ancillary Justice last night, um, and I definitely have heard the opening scene of that a lot of times as I have tried to restart it, and then I get distracted by other books. Yeah. So I feel like I've got I've got that scene down, and it's a little grisly for me, for normal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I remember that if I get past that scene, it gets less grisly. But <sighs> but the beginning that I keep re-listening to really is it's, a lot. It is. But the whole thing is, it's like that. I think the whole way through, it's like, um, it's nerve-wracking. 
Sorry, my kitty is visiting me again because there you go. You stay over there, kitty. Uh, but it, it is nerve wracking <laughs> um, and really tense. I'm worried about them all and uh, worried about how things are going to be and how they're going to accomplish the stuff. And it's not a um, comfort read. That's for darn sure. It's not. It's not. Because I am deeply worried about all the characters and like that. They're up against yeah. a lot and bad things are going to happen to people that I like. So, yeah. Well, even if I get distracted and start re-listening to it all the way through, we're still discussing the Eric Larson on the <laughs> we, next We podcast. totally are. This Next time, Eric Larson or Bust. Yes, That's but not Bust. Just Eric just, Larson. Just Eric Larson. We're going to do it. It's going to be fine. And that, hey, we both own that book, so it won't return itself automatically before we're done. That's true. That's good. That's true. But in the meantime... We got distracted. Why Fish Don't Exist, A Story of Lost Love and the Hidden Order of Life by Lulu Miller. Yes. Uh, how did we how did we get to this? Well, we had that show where we're discussing books that we wish we'd read in 2020 from the NPR concierge oh, yeah. list. And this was a book that had caught my eye. And I really waffled on like, eh, and I mean, the NPR concierge list was like, this is the best book. Fabulous book. You've got to read this book. And it did worry me that I wouldn't like it. But I put it on hold at my library and it came in and I had just finished, you know, it might have been The Splendid and the Vile, but I finished. <laughs> mm, and I needed another book and I picked this one up and I read the whole thing in one day. It's not a particularly big book, but uh, given the reading problems that I've had for a year or so, it's kind of dazzling that I would read a whole book in one day. Um, oh. I just couldn't put it down. And I don't think I understood what what it was going to be uh, and what it's going to be about. Um, but that's how I got dragged into it. And then I started screenshotting quotes and sending them to you because I like to incite um, things like that. And, yeah. 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 So my guess would be that that was around 21 days ago because my ebook from the library expired <laughs> today. And I think that after seeing your screenshots, I just went and got it right then. I think you did. And then I was like, because so. I remember because I was still reading it when I started sending you screenshots. And and then I was like, ah, there's been a twist. You know, things are happening I did not expect. Ah! And you were yeah. reading and trying to good. catch up with me. So, so did I lead you astray <sighs> or... Is it okay? No, it was a, the good kind of. You led me onto a path that I want to be on. Excellent. So, would you like to read this thing from Goodreads, or would you like me to do so since I got us involved with this? Um, I will read it, okay. and then you can tell us where it gets the description wrong, maybe oh, or not. Okay. Um, all right. Why fish don't exist? A story of lost love and the hidden order of life by Lulu Miller. A wondrous debut from an extraordinary new voice in nonfiction. Why fish don't exist is a dark and astonishing tale of love, chaos, scientific obsession, and possibly even murder. David Starr Jordan was a taxonomist, a man possessed with bringing order to the natural world. In time, he would be credited with discovering nearly a fifth of the fish known to humans in his day. But the more of the hidden blueprint of life he uncovered, the harder the universe seemed to try to thwart him. 
his specimen collections were demolished by lightning, by fire, and eventually by the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which sent more than a thousand of his discoveries housed in fragile glass jars plummeting to the floor. In an instant, his life's work was shattered. Many might have given up, given in to despair, but Jordan, he surveyed the wreckage at his feet, found the first fish he recognized, and confidently began to rebuild his collection. And this time, he introduced one clever innovation that he believed would at last protect his work against the chaos of the world. When NPR reporter Lulu Miller first heard this anecdote in passing, she took Jordan for a fool, a cautionary tale in hubris or denial. But as her own life slowly unraveled, she began to wonder about him. Perhaps instead, he was a model for how to go on when all seemed lost. What she would unearth about his life would transform her understanding of history, morality, and the world beneath her feet. Part biography, part memoir, part scientific adventure, Why Fish Don't Exist reads like a fable about how to persevere in a world where chaos will always prevail. Hmm. It is an interesting write-up. The the part that strikes me as different than the way that I read it is this concept that she starts off with his life as a cautionary tale um, about hubris or denial. And, and when I was reading it, I didn't know anything about David Starr Jordan. Um, and I thought that it was going to be a story of like his triumph um, of how, of grit, of getting back in there and continuing on when, you know, when your collection is struck by lightning and burned to the ground and then an earthquake hits the second one, of getting up and, yeah. and sewing labels on fish and never, never, never giving up. And that is what I thought his story was going to be, and it isn't. Um, nope. And neither is hers. And... I really loved and hated that about it. I loved it because I'm not a big reader of of books of self-help, self-discovery, or self-improvement. Because, although I'm listening to one right now on, on audio, that I always feel like I know what the message is in the first two pages, and then I, why should I read the rest of the book? Uh, but this one was not like that. And in a way, I think it's more her story than it is his. He is a, a lens or a cipher through which she can examine herself and her life and her needs and um, her um, decision either to go on with life or not and how to go do so when you are a speck in the universe. Um, and I, so in a way... I got sucked into it for for the fish, <laughs> and the fact that there are no fish <laughs> turns out to be the thing, uh, which I really did love. Um, although I was like, like I said, when it switched to being in, from this tale of grit, which is frankly how I roll, um, to grit is not enough to get you through this. Sometimes you're deluding yourself. Um, I was really surprised. I was like, what? You can't build me up with this tale of perseverance all this time and then pull the rug out from underneath my feet. But in the end, I just thought it was devastatingly good. Um, that I, yeah. 
I don't, I rarely read anything like this. I don't read self-help books or self-improvement books other than books about writing. I rarely read biography or autobiography or memoir. Uh, but I do like micro-histories and natural history books. So that is what lured me into reading it off the NPR list. And I was just dazzled, amazed, stunned. It was dazzling. You? Yeah. It was dazzling. Yeah. I mean, you had me from like just the screenshots in terms of like that it was going to have the kind of things that I look for, which is like stuff that gives me feels that I want to screenshot and send my friends. Um, but you're, but did you feel tricked? Because it's definitely like in libraries cataloged as a like 508.092, which is like natural history books about the people who do natural history. Kind of. And it's kind of, but this is kind of that. It is kind of that. You learn all kinds of stuff about David Starr Jordan, didn't you? Uh, I know all kinds of stuff about David Starr Jordan and about taxonomy and uh, how uh, members of the animal kingdom are categorized and I learned a ton of stuff about that. So it, it satisfied all of that. I like natural history books stuff, but I think the, the, the wallop that it has is in Lulu Miller's story and her interaction with David Starr Jordan rather than he and him in and of himself. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. And since he is dead and yeah. she's alive, <laughs> her interaction with a world that she creates from people who are impacted by him or yeah. or knew him or, or the world that he lived in. Yeah. Yeah, which made it really not exactly like come alive, but like gave it meaning, gave yeah. his life meaning um, in a way where I might not have related to fish in jars, but it made the other things he did in life have meaning that I cared about. Yeah, I think so. Yes. So I'm, I was thought it was interesting that it's in one of the questions I always ask of the book is where do you shelve it? And I always think bookstores and you always think libraries. Um, right. And if I were a student writing a paper on David Starr Jordan, it would be very useful because it tells me a bunch of stuff about him. Uh, if I'm just a crazy about them fish, it would probably, you know, sweep me away anyway because it's just so stellar. But I would be, it would not be the book that I thought that it was going to be. If that makes sense. Yeah. But, yeah. I had to. Um, and if. Because like here's two different quotes from two different places in the book. One of them is one that I, I sent you from the very beginning of the book and how we are viewing David Starr Jordan then. He's just had this big earthquake and it's destroyed all of his fishes. Um, and he walks in and thousands of fish lying in broken glass all over the floor and it becomes separated from their tags. Uh, so what does David do? What does our careful man of science who wants above all else to see the world for what it is do? Does he hear what seems to be the obvious message of the earthquake, that entropy is the way of the world and that no human can ever stop it? Nope. When this, this is when the bastard, the wonderful bastard, takes out his sewing needle and plunges it straight into our ruler's throat. So he's going to sit down and say, nothing is going to defeat him. He's going to sew the tags on the fish 
and and win. But then later on in the book, much later, she's talking about this self-confidence that he had that um, he nothing is ever going to stop him is misplaced. She He is giving this speech to San Francisco and saying, uh, yeah, this is a huge disaster and we're going to get back up and we're going to fight. She says, what a wonderful rousing call to arms. What a glorious pat on the back and a squeeze of the shoulders with only one tiny problem. If you examine his words closely, you will discover it. The tiny grain of sand that forms the pearl is a lie. It is the will of man that shapes the fates. It was the kind of lie he promised he would never tell himself. It was the kind of lie he had warned would lead to evil. It was the kind of lie he'd spent his career crusading against. Nature is no respecter of persons. The kind of lie he said was worth fighting to the death. Even he needed to believe it was true so as not to be consumed by despair. So she she builds this person up and then she she's like, and he's wrong. And if he were not a total egomaniac and a probably wicked, horrible person. His success, he would not have been as successful as he was because at, at the fish thing and the controlling right. um, Stanford University, um, if he were not also a delusional, obsessed egomaniac. <laughs> um that's yeah, some tricky self-help you know, she got into this book. Woo! Yeah. 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 Because she takes you along for the whole ride. She does. And, and you she don't know. Out, like, if, if you, there's one later on she's talking about, if you tell a... Sorry, um, go ahead. A non-delusional egomaniac and or a depressed person or a person with poor self-esteem, you know, you're lousy. They're like, you're right. I am lousy. And then they just crawl back in and put the blanket over their head. And if you say that to a person like David Starr Jordan or other egotistical maniacs that she mentions, some by name and some not, she does. they'll just, they'll just tell you, um, how wrong you are and that everything you do is wonderful and the world is crazy about them and that their ideas are wonderful all the time, even when they're in fact not wonderful. Um, she talks about um, Fidel Castro wanting to build a hurricane barrier around Cuba, for example. And right. because he believes so much in himself, it never occurs to him that that's just not going to work. Um, yeah. She's a good science writer because she had those examples that weren't just... They weren't just like, oh, here's a science fact. They were like, here's a nuanced thing about how people work and how we understand the world that coincidentally is a science fact. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they really made the book more relatable because even if you weren't so much with the fish, you found other other things she was bringing up that you could relate to. Yeah, I think science writers are really wonderful people. Uh, to I mean, they're tremendous writers and write super interesting things. And like all memoir or nonfiction type writers at Derek Larson's going to be another one. You, if you're only giving the reader the facts of what happened, the facts of, of this man's life, 
or the facts of whatever's going to happen to Churchill. It, um, it doesn't work. In order to be great, you have to relate things outward. How can I relate this to my world, my life, my views, um, things that have, have happened to me or, you know, so you have to have an outward facing view to write good memoir, which is like a thing. I know a lot of memoirists and uh, not to diss them, but their book may be totally interesting to their family, but it's never going to be interesting to people outside their family because it's not outward facing, you know. Um, if you're going to write your story of your life on the farm, as fascinating as the details of that may be, unless it relates to some bigger puzzle or question, it's not going to be as good. Yes. I agree. Okay. And, and she relates it to things that I didn't know I would be interested in. And so I think that's also another talent to relate it to the founding of Stanford University or, I mean, things where I was like, oh, well, I didn't care about that before, but now I kind of do it's kind <laughs> because of, of the way Enough. she's introduced it and described it. Yes, let's discuss the murder plot, shall we? Speaking of things you didn't right? see coming. That came out of nowhere. nowhere. And then I was like, totally there for it. <laughs> yes. So the, the, the short, non, non, um, too spoilery thing is that Stanford University was founded by rich people. Uh, and the wife in the pair was into like spiritualism and stuff that that um, David Starr Jordan couldn't stomach because it's not science, right? Uh, and so the man dies and the woman gets to hold the purse strings and stuff like that. And she dies under mysterious circumstances in Hawaii. And the book is kind of intimating that maybe he had something to do with her untimely death. Since they were not getting along well. Um, and I don't know. What do you think? Do you think he did it? Um, I think that the case the book makes, using his own words and actions, is really damning. But he's not in um, Hawaii. So. But he, sh he shows up to make sure everybody understands it wasn't him. That's true. But, you know, and, I was wondering, like, and if, that he, was just if he, if so he did do it, that's terrible. But if he didn't do it, I thought there's another explanation for why he shows up and convinces everybody he didn't do it. Um, and that is damage control. That her death uh, is less important to him than protecting the institution um and ha and by protecting the institution i mean having things go the way he thinks they should go at the institution uh, protecting his position and importance and money stream so uh even if he didn't kill her i don't think he's uh you know uh morally fabulous here Right, he's so morally messy. Like the whole book is like, here's this guy I super admire. I'm gonna study him more to figure out how to not be despairing in my own life. Right. Oh man, this is a mess. It is a mess. It was great. His married I loved life it. is a mess. His children, his 
parenthood is a mess. His academic life is a mess. His, you know, did he murder his employer or not? Um, his like his civic choices, oh. his ways to engage in the broader world and influence yeah, policy is a mess. He turns out to be a eugenicist. Um, surprise! Surprise! That's bad, that was a bad surprise. Well, I'm like, no, I was glad I was no longer that. rooting for him at that point. Yeah, I mean, and it's true. I'm like, okay. the, But it all tracks well, like, philosophically through the book. If the point of the book is... The question that she has all of her life is, how do you go on with living? Yeah. When your existence is meaningless. When you are just a little speck of nothing sitting on another little speck of nothing in the vastness of all of the universe. How do you even continue? And that's a huge question and uh i know that it, it caught me in this this cold dark world in which i have lots of other things going on as well of of how do you go on when when there's no point to your existence and his answer to that was what do you mean there's no point to my existence i'm david star jordan i'm fabulous and you're like yeah grit that's it just get back up and keep fighting and then he turns out to be this dreadful dreadful person um right so where clearly, he wants him to go on but doesn't want others to go on uh, doesn't want other people to go on if you do not meet his definition of worth then you're worthless uh and i'm like well that's kind of a rat fink thing to do so we can't accept that is the answer to how do we go on to just think of your own self, your own interests, believe in your own worth, despite all the evidence to the contrary, and plow straight ahead. Um, it's not the answer. So then she has to say, well, what, what is the answer? Um, in, when your life is screwed up, when things have happened that are bad, when... Um, you wonder why you should bother anymore. How do you go forward from there? And that is why it's such a big, hard-hitting, uh, all-the-feels type book. Um, yeah. And you have, great. Great, great. So do you think that question got answered satisfactorily to you? Um, I think that she answered it satisfactorily for her and that that's the point of this book and that the book is about how you have to answer it for yourself. And she gives you tips in a not cheesy self-help way. Thank goodness. Right. Thank goodness. In like a sciencey metaphor kind of way that, that, that tells you that you have to try to do the things. Yeah. And then you can feel slightly superior that you didn't start out looking at David Star Jordan as your idol and <laughs> hope that <laughs> you yourself are idolizing people who are less problematic and then worry that they actually are more problematic and then you have to go do the research and think it through. Yeah. That's what I think. But I will say we have a, a notes document and you've put some quotes in there that are very closely related to things that I myself had picked out Yes, um, from this book. Um, so the second one you have on your list, 
for example? Yes. It says, while other people don't matter either, treat them like they do. Right. And then I have to go with that. He's, she is visiting a couple of people who survived the horrors of the results of eugenics. Um, it says, this small web of people keeping one another afloat, all these minuscule interactions, a friendly wave, a pencil sketch, some plastic beads strung up, a nylon cord. They might not look like much from the outside, but for the people caught inside that web, they might be everything, the very tethers that keep one bound to this planet. Um, and later on she says, that's when it hit me, that it was not a lie to say that Anna matters, or that Mary matters, or that, hold on to your seat, you matter, reader. It wasn't a lie to say so, but a more accurate way of seeing nature. Um, so in our, and I, and I really love that, like, I'm a big believer in paying attention to small happinesses, um, because big happinesses are made up of them. And so I really was struck there. And clearly you were too. Yes. And this is not exactly relevant, but it totally is. Because last time on the podcast, we talked about how I just started drinking tea. So in between reading this book and reading those kind of sections, I um, organized a massive exchange of tea with everybody on my social media who wanted some. Um, and since then, I just bought a lot of tea on sale and then mixed and matched all the packages and then dropped some off for people and people picked them up. Since then, other people are bringing me tea bags. And it's um, like I just got a new package today on my porch, just like a little plastic baggie with like some white tea, blueberries. I haven't tried it yet. It looks delicious. But I feel like like those little things are tea. Yeah. <laughs> and they're wonderful. Yeah, so it's those those small, like I said, those, the little interactions, the small kindnesses that we do to each other, the finding of meaning in some small thing. I keep in my office here a little uh, enamel bowl, and in it are a variety of small and meaningless objects that are meaningful to me. Um, and they would not be of value to anyone else on the face of the earth. But they they are meaningful because of the meaning that I give them and the memories that are associated with them or the feelings that I have for them. And that's enough for them to to be of value. And I think that's, that's kind of what she's getting at here. When you give tea to someone else, you you are giving yourself value and you're giving them value in the exchange of of dried up leaves that have been crushed right and it's, right. it's enough it's enough so um it was nice to read the thing that said yes you're you're a, a a tiny dot among many other tiny dots in the middle of an endless vastness and you are enough and you are worthy um and that was lovely it was. And I do, I mean, if I had like a special thing I love to happen in books, like a dear reader moment is one of them yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Like I do love that so yes. much. Um, and they aren't always quite as lovely as that one, but I do love all of them. 
Um, oh, remember when you started texting me about this book and I got really excited and texted you a million screenshots of the Fish app? <laughs> yes, and I went and got the Fish app. Put, did you did you like it? Absolutely, I love the Fish app. Yes. So, so the Fish <laughs> app is by Robin Sloan, and um, and he made it years ago. Robin Sloan, um, author of Mr. Penumbra's Twenty Four Hour Bookstore and Sourdough, and sourdough uh, and um, and it's an essay, and it's a it's an app essay, and you tap on the screen, and it advances you through the essay. And for um, several years, it was not available in the App Store. And for several years, my um, old iPhone, two iPhones ago, um, we were basically maintaining in my household so that I could reread the Fish app and so that we could play this awesome game called Stride and Prejudice, which was like an endless runner where a tiny Elizabeth Bennett pixelated character just ran across the scrolling words of Pride and Prejudice and you just jumped over the spaces and it was amazing. It is amazing. I know. I finally, after like three years, came to terms with the fact that other people could be using that phone, and I wiped it clean and sent it to a friend to use with her kids. But, um, but I was keeping it basically for the Fish app. <laughs> um, and Robin Sloan lost the original um, file of his app and did not have access to it anymore. And then rallied the internet so that people who still had access to it could send him screenshots of the entire thing so he could recreate it. And that's why you were able to get it. There you go. It is lovely. And it did remind me strongly of, of this book. I can see why it reminded you, why you associated them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, um, it's not like I know a lot about fish. <laughs> now you do. I know. So, so do we want to tell people why fish don't exist or do you just have to read the book and find out why there are no fish? Um, I say people have to I, read it. Okay. I'm voting for that. Do you think people should tell people why there's no fish? Do you disagree? No, but I think we should tell people why she's so excited about it. Yes. Yes. So first off, you just have to accept that there is no such thing as a fish. There are no fish. Fish um, don't exist. Fish do not exist. Um, and I have, uh... I'm trying to think like whether I want to like jump into like a couple quotes here or why why do you think it's important to her that there's no such thing as fish? I think it's important because she doesn't I mean her book is a takedown of David Star Jordan. <laughs> um I mean her book is a deep dive into why his flavor of perseverance isn't something that she can emulate to get through her days. And I think that it's like her grand finale to say, not only did you, David Star Jordan, persevere through all this stuff, but in the end, you were wrong and it didn't matter on a fundamental level. Mm-hmm. You went and you named all these fish and maybe you named a fifth of all the fishes that there are, but there's no such thing as a fish. Um, yeah. And... I do have quotes from this because I happen to have pulled all the same things that I needed here remarkably. Um, Amazing. There you go. And she, she's talking about um, life and death being flip sides of each other and um, the nature of chaos. She says, the best way of ensuring that you don't miss them, these gifts, the trick that has helped me squint at the bleakness and see them more clearly 
is to admit with every breath that you have no idea what you are looking at. Uh, that it's, it was so important to him to categorize everything in the world. Everything has to have a place. There's a giant tree and everybody has their slot on it and we're going to get in our slot and that's going to be, everything is going to be understandable. And her response to that is, nothing is understandable. Uh, you may think that it is and maybe you're right. Maybe you're not. Um, but you have to go in with the concept that you may never understand any of it. Um, she says, I am reminded to do as Darwin did, to wonder about the re reality waiting behind our assumptions. Perhaps that unsightly bacteria is producing the oxygen you need to breathe. Perhaps that heartbreak will prove to be a gift, the hard edge off which you reluctantly bounce to find a better match. Perhaps even your dreams need examining. Perhaps even your hope needs some doubt. Um, and her metaphor for this is giving up the fish, accepting that there is no such thing as a fish. There are no fish. And she says, when I give up the fish, I get a skeleton key a fish-shaped skeleton key that pops the grid of rules off this world and lets you step through to a wilder place, the other world within this one, the gridless place out the window where fish don't exist and diamonds rain from the sky and each and every dandelion is reverberating with possibility. Um, and I was just dazzled. Uh, yeah. By that. And it, I found it exciting. It's, to me, it's an exciting idea that the not knowing is almost as reassuring as the knowing because it's going to be something. You just don't know what yet. Or, yeah. Or maybe ever. Um, yeah. Like she reframes it so beautifully. And she does it in a nonfiction narrative, nonfiction science book. <laughs> but <Yeah>. she reframes <laughs> that, like, bringing order to the world as a way to control it and, and be esteemed and exert your academic prowess and, and explore and categorize as, like, not the answer. Because we'll always learn other stuff and we'll always find new things. And you can't control all the things. Yeah. It's really great. It is really great and and remarkably personal. Um, yeah. But yeah, you can see why the NPR concierge people and many other book lists recommend this book, which, heck, I can't recommend enough, I guess. Uh, I may have to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I may too. Um, earlier, I did not mention that I recently binge listened to the audiobook of Uncharted Territory by Connie Willis, but it's suddenly relevant because, because um, I think that book came out maybe 12 years ago, but the audiobook just came out. Um, it's actually about people, um, a pair of people exploring a planet um, and naming all of the things that they find. Wow. And I somehow didn't make the connection between those two themes until just now. But I would go as far as to call it a good companion read for why fish don't exist um, 
for a lot of reasons. Um, including that both of these books are relatively happy by the end. Yeah. Subtly happy. Yeah, hopeful. Say hopeful. hopeful. Mm-hmm. So the other one is very science fiction, not science narrative nonfiction, but um, but really lovely. Um, and, a, and a fair bit still of like fame and obsessive quest for <laughs> naming things after yourself and obsessive quest for um, becoming more famous and uh, and what you give up by doing those things. Well, so very parallel, considering I picked it very much at random. I was gonna, considering the state we find ourselves in, I'm going to say that this book is an excellent companion for the Splendid and the Vile for lots of the mm-hmm. same way in that it's taking real people that you have learned to view as heroic, mythic, larger than life people and looking at um, the reality of who they really are and also trying to take the tangled spaghetti mess that is reality and package it into a thing that takes a more narrative form. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and also, The Splendid of Vile is a, is a book that looks at how do various people respond to extraordinary circumstances. So we have, uh, in this book, uh, Mr. Jordan here sewing his labels on his fish. And the next one is going to take a look at how does Winston Churchill and how do people around Winston Churchill respond to the extraordinary circumstances of the beginning of World War II. Yeah. So all you got to do is finish it. I will. That's what I was just thinking. It's like, wow, that was a really good intro to next time when we definitely discuss The Splendid and the Vile. Definitely discussing The Splendid and the Vile, which is awesome. Just takes a million years to read. I thought it was oh, never I'm like, end. I think I'm like two thirds of the way through. Oh, well, you know what, Lisa? You're more than you think you are probably because there's a boatload of footnotes at the end. <gasps> that happened in this book too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's going to end sooner than you think it is. It is Ooh. a big book, but... Is somewhat shorter than you think it is due to it has a lot of footnotes and uh, stuff like that at the end. So maybe I'll read it tonight. I just got an amazing speaking of like how people are interrelated and the network and the web. I just got an amazing text message that said, could I bring you a cheesecake at 830? Heck yeah. What kind of question is that? I know. I, I texted back during podcasts, which I almost never do. But that seemed like an emergency text, an to emergency which I needed text. to reply. Yes. yes. So I've got uh, my my clock two and a half hours to finish The Splendid and the Vile before wow. my cheesecake arrives. Well, I'm going to, right after this, I'm going to go downstairs and demand that my people provide me with these things. And I'm going to use you as an example. I'm like, people just be bringing Lissa cheesecake to her door. Where is my and cheesecake? Tea. How about that? And tea. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. It's a plan. I mean, I did drop off fudge. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's I a think, really good dessert think, racket I've got I've been going good on. good to my people, so, you know. It's true. So. It's true. It's good to me, too. Oh, All we've right. We've taken the important lessons away from this book, for sure. We are. We are. Like, Marian needs more cheesecake. And mm-hmm. also, Lissa, you are enough. Yes. Marian, you are enough. Thank you. Feel You're good welcome. about it. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist Podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelists at gmail.com.